Welcome to Discover Indie Film. I'm your host, Jeff Howard, and I am honored to have Justin Serkin with me. Hey, Justin. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. This is, uh, I normally don't know people's voices, but uh, we both got deep voices, so this is going to be <laughs> a sexy, deep voice podcast, I think. Yes, we're very we're very deep today. We're going to get deep, too. A lot of testosterone in this little room. Seriously. But for real. So anyway, <laughs> Justin is here because last November... Maybe December, because actually, it's funny, I always call Sherman Oaks Film Festival a November festival, but that was the first year that we had it the week after Thanksgiving instead of the week before, and I loved it that way. I think we got more people showing up, because no one goes out of town the week after. So anyway, your screening was probably in December, I bet. Yeah. It might have been the first or I, second. You know, actually, I think it might have been November 29th. Oh, yeah. oh was it opening yeah. night? I think it was opening night, yeah. Uh, then you were right at the end of November. Yeah. All right, well, I just wasted time of your podcast interview <laughs> talking about when the film showed. But anyway, you brought your film Reseda, your short film Reseda, to the Sherman Oaks Film Festival. We did your L.A. premiere. Kicked ass. Had a great yep. time. Yep. I'm a big fan of the film, as you know. You. I just I just find it funny, and I love the style. So Thank we'll you. be talking about that when we get to it. And uh, I assume, because we're doing this a little early, it's not online or anything yet, right? No, it's, uh, it's still on the festival circuit as of right now. Exactly. So so no pressure. Whenever it is on the festival circuit, feel free to let me know. We'll put a link yeah. where people can see it. Absolutely. And uh, and I'll be hitting you up with avenues, because <laughs> I think there's a good avenue or two for it. Certainly. But anyhow, all right, so then we don't have to tell people where to go watch it up to you what kind of spoilers we share yeah needless to say generally people you know i don't worry about spoilers personally me either i mean what i mean in this day and age how can you really escape it and you practically have a spoiler on your on your poster practically (laughs) (laughs) it says practically which by the way it's funny when we get when we get to the part of your life that involves Reseda, like i'm even gonna joke about like that that I think I said things in the Q&A based upon that tagline you have in the poster uh-huh. that I might even disagree with. I'm not even sure I think uh, what your lead guy, Sill, is... Yeah. Uh, I actually don't think he's dumb now. Oh, really? Yeah. You think, be... Do you think he's smart? <laughs> I think he might be the victim of a crime more than anything else. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. he could be so dumb that he lost something important. Uh-huh. But the more I thought about it after that Q and A, when I like talked about, I think I called him a buffoon or something. You did. You called him a B- buffoon. Buffoon, like the yeah. classic buffoon character. Mm-hmm. I don't see him that way anymore. Interesting. I don't. I see him as like a counterpuncher. You know. You know, I uh, I I watch a lot of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I watch. I love Larry David. He's my favorite comedian. And Sill was very inspired by Larry, and I wanted to kind of create like a Larry. If he was like a drug dealer in like a Tarantino movie, that was kind of an idea. Um, but they always say Larry is a victim of circumstance, and I think that's the same for Sill. He's a victim of circumstance, exactly, <laughs> and not necessarily <laughs> dumb, just kind of like trying to get through with the circumstances in. But anyhow, sure. so that's Reseda. But before we get to Reseda, I already warned you. Podcast is all about creative people, right, and and the filmmakers because. At the festival, you know, we get to talk a good 10, 15 minutes about your film. But there's more to it than that, and there's more to you than that. So I already warned you. The first question is, 
what got you into filmmaking? What was your early inspirations? Yeah, so when I was about four years old, I remember seeing Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. I think I saw it on a DVD. I was four or five, and the movie came out in 2005, but I've a, I kind of have a vague memory of it. But I remember seeing it. I specifically remember seeing the last about hour of the film when Anakin and Obi-Wan have their battle on that uh, lava planet. And that just totally mesmerized me. I mean, I was absolutely hooked from there on in. And I was I just remember feeling like... I want to make this whatever it is. I didn't even know what a director was. I didn't know how a movie was made. I was only a kid. I was only like four or five. So, But I just remember having this feeling of like, whatever this is that I'm watching, I want to I do it. I want to make it. Right. And you were hooked by cinema itself and, and especially that scene, right? Like universe yeah. building, like world building. Like, yes. like it was a yes. different big world. Thing. Big thing for me was, was world building. I'm sure you hear this when you when you t- if you've told other people that inspiration, but I think it's cool because obviously, what do you know? I'm probably whatever years older than you. So so when we all when my generation saw Star Wars, yeah. and it was just a movie called Star Wars, there was no there was no hope in that title. <laughs> uh, it inspired an entire generation, and and then we all shat on those prequels. Yeah, but the point is the prequels were inspiring to someone that this universe was new to. Yes. And what's funny about that is um, a lot of people, a lot of people at my age um, grew up with the prequels and like them maybe even as much as the original ones. Like I, I love episodes one, two, and three. Three is my favorite. And I can see the flaws in all three of them. But I love episodes one and two also like i i just love the world building i think it added a lot to the the saga and i think george lucas just expanded the world so much and and the characters and the lore and i think a lot of people forget how much the prequels actually contributed to the overall franchise people like to look back on the the originals and say those were better and they are better i agree but I think episode three is is pretty spectacular of a movie. I've heard that. I've heard that. I mean, I'm open-minded. Honestly, mm-hmm. what you're kind of making me aware of, too, is like most things, it's also just how you're first introduced, right? Yeah, and, that's very true. And the real problem that uptight assholes like me have, by the way, <laughs> there is an explicit warning with the Discovery Indie Film podcast, so you can uh-huh. curse if you want. Oh, cool. I'll probably curse more. I love cursing. I'll curse more than you no matter what. (laughs) But the motherfucking... No, uh, the reason why we shit on the prequels so much is story inconsistency, right? Because we grew up with the first three and they sort of created something. And then it felt like the prequels did some rewriting that Hmm. conflicted. And so it pissed us off that like, you can't say... But if you see the prequels first... Those yeah. are the rules of the universe. Well, it's funny. I didn't see the prequels first. Oh. I actually saw the originals before I saw the prequels as a kid. And I I saw four, five, and six, and then I saw three, and three gave me a ton of context. So, And then I saw uh, one and two after that. So I was still 
like I still loved Star Wars even with the originals because and that was very important to my dad. It was very important to my dad that I was like because my dad's like your generation, I think. I would assume, yeah. Yeah, he he was very. Uh, it was very important to him that I saw the originals before I saw the prequels. I did. It, I did the same thing with my stepdaughter yeah. when uh, when when uh, one of the prequels. Oh no! Well, go on. Not about me. Well, I was gonna say. Well, I was just gonna say. Um, I wonder if the new generation of kids who grew up with the with the sequels will feel the same way that my generation feels about the prequels. I'm very interested to see if they love those movies, like if they love The Last Jedi or like The Rise of Skywalker as much as I love uh, Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, I don't know, but I can I can tell you one thing that when my stepdaughter was eight, The Force Awakens was coming. Yeah. So I said. Whoa, whoa, whoa! We're gonna watch all three prequel, uh, all three original, the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. Then we're gonna watch the th- prequels. Then we're gonna go see Force Awakens. And in her context, BB-8's the coolest droid that ever lived. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's great. I, that's really awesome. Like, here, like you know, and he, I, I consider that character great. Mm-hmm. But like, no, it's no one thinks no one in my generation actually would prefer that droid to R2-D2, to yeah. right? right? But <laughs> but for her, she's like, oh, he's way cooler. Wow, that's that's really interesting. That's yeah. kind of how I feel a little bit about um, some of the prequel characters. Like, General Grievous, to me, is, like, the coolest, badass, like, droid army leader, like, of all time I've ever seen. See? Yeah, and See? I, I think he's kind of cooler than, like, Boba Fett. I like Boba Fett a lot, but I think he's cooler. Yeah. Well, we're in dangerous territory because we could probably <laughs> talk about Star Wars probably, for a couple hours. for a while, yeah. But I'll, I'll, uh-huh. uh, and I'll piss off friends, but uh-huh. Boba Fett is not cool for what he did on screen. He's cool for <laughs> what he represented as a toy afterward. Like, yes, yeah, He, yeah, he ended toy. up being the coolest action that figure. That action figure. Yeah, and, and the one with the dot on his hand that was like, oh, if you found it, you made $10,000. Like, <laughs> but, but like... But if you actually watch the movies, he it really isn't much to him. No. <laughs> but outside the films, he's just become like, you know. And then, of course, then you get a TV series mm-hmm. about, right. uh, you know, Mandalorian. And all of a sudden, it's like right. these bounty hunters, are, forget it, they're the coolest. Mm-hmm. Such a good show. Okay, so anyhow, mm-hmm. you saw. So even though you'd already seen the original trilogy, mm-hmm. It was, it was Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, Revenge really, of the Sith. That like, and so you went home and you're like, "What happened next? Did you try to figure out how movies are made? Did you read some books? Did you like? I guess at your age, did you search the web about how? You know, I wasn't on the web until I was about like six or seven. I think that was the first time I was on YouTube, and I would look up the scenes from star Wars to watch again, because I didn't, I don't think I had the DVD for a while. I honestly don't remember how I saw a uh, revenge of the Sith. I either saw it on a DVD or I saw it in the theater. And I feel like I would remember if I saw it in the theater, but I didn't. So, um, you could ask your dad. He could probably tell you if he took you. I've asked him, I've asked him and he, he thinks he may have, he doesn't remember. And I'm, I really like, I'm like, oh, why don't you remember? You would be the person who remembers this, but he doesn't. So, um, but I just watched more movies after Revenge of the Sith. My dad really showed, showed me a lot of movies up until, well, I mean, we still watch movies together, but 
he showed me some classics like uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. He showed me when I was about 10 years old. And he he thinks that that movie uh, did more than uh, Revenge of the Sith did for me. But I always say 2001 was the movie that really showed me what cinema could could really do like be like just go beyond the screen uh so that that was a really important movie to me also growing up well and you're sharing that your dad is clearly a cinephile i I would describe him as a cinephile he he's a huge hitchcock fan he loves hitchcock that's That's a cinephile i mean if if you're going to kubrick and and hitchcock then you are then you are into the the real deal he wasn't telling you I'll sit down. I want to show you Dirty Dancing. No. Apologies no. to everyone who loves that film. <laughs> but, but yeah, so you grew up with a, with a cinephile dad. So when did you first start get to play with a camera, or did you start writing first or something? Yeah, well, when I was, I remember being seven or eight, and I would, I would draw little, like, comics and pictures and stuff. I had, I had a, like, I was a pretty imaginative kid. And I had all my action figures and I, I had all my like plush animals and I would try to like create like a lore with them. Like I would, you know, when you're a kid, you play with them and you, you, know, you take different ones and, you know, you create kind of like a narrative. So and I would draw little like comic strips or pictures and even fake movie posters with these with my little action figures Um and so that was kind of like a start where I was trying to visualize something like a story. I didn't really pick up a camera until I was about, I feel like I was about 11 and I, and my mom got us a camcorder and I didn't really <laughs> funny. I didn't really use it as much as I uh, thought I would. I was really also when I was 12 and I was in middle school, I, I would write a lot of short stories so I was, I, I'd say it really started as I wanted to tell a story and I wanted to write that down first and, and then visualize it, uh, maybe on paper. And then when I get, but, but then when I got to high school, when I got to high school, that was really when I decided like, this is, this is time for me to take this seriously and and write and direct. And I just got so involved uh, in film in high school. Right. So, so high school just after puberty. So, I mean, you were, you were storytelling mm-hmm. on paper and then, yeah, when you hit a certain age, you obviously write our minds expand. I mean, there's nothing better than being a teenager. If you ask me like the stuff that goes <laughs> on in your mind and just like the creativity and the thinking and a lot of insecurity though. Insecurity. Sure. Yeah. But also just like the world's your oyster in a way. So, so it that's is. when you started thinking, all right, I wanted, so you, you, and you just, you knew that camera was there. Yeah, the camera was there, but when I got, I went to school at Calabasas High School and they had a film program that went for 4 years. So I did that and they had great equipment. So I had better I can imagine access. how many people would be like how LA is that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty LA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um the when I was in middle school, I also was considering doing acting. And I, but I have a notebook from when I was about 12 and in the notebook, I wrote that I wanted to be a director. So I've known at least until at least when I was 12 years old that I wanted to make films. So when I got to high school, I was already in that mode of like, you know, let's go, let's do it. Cool. So, so 
did you take a short story you'd already written and start writing, changing into screenplay, or did you start no. writing screenplays I originally? Started, I just started writing. I started writing screenplays when I was about fourteen, like when I actually typed it out into a screenplay format. And I did you look that up? Did you go get the style guides or? I, I there's a there's a free program on. I think I started actually writing it on Google Docs. <laughs> right, there was that thing Scriptor it. or something. What was it? I don't know. I. There was one that was called Celtex that I that's still around, uh, and I used that for years. That was like what I really learned the screenplay format on. Um, and I tried to at a certain point when I was sixteen, I tried to write exactly like Tarantino because he was like my favorite director, and I would try really, really hard, really hard, and fail <laughs> to to write like him. But uh, sometimes I would get a little close, like I would write a line, and I would I would read it to myself or I'd read it out loud and I would think this is something maybe Sam Jackson would say maybe but it, there was something about it that it wasn't quite and it, it was never going to be you know exactly that but I at some point I realized if I'm truly influenced by Quentin Tarantino then I will be I'll write normally I'll write naturally the way I normally write and you'll be able to see some of the influence if you're really looking for it so, but as a teenager, I was really, I was insecure. I was, you know, I wasn't confident as a writer yet. So I was just trying to copy my favorite filmmakers. For sure. And so Tar- Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. you're 14. Mm-hmm. When did you first start seeing his stuff? That's a great question. And I have a crazy answer to that. So when I was, uh, when I was eight years old, <laughs> my parents took us on a trip somewhere. Uh, I think it, it was somewhere in Northern California and we stayed at a hotel, a really nice hotel. And we, and in the, his, in, in the hotel room, there was a television and I saw a trailer for a film called Inglorious Bastards. And I thought it was, it looked super bloody and I was eight years old and I never, I wasn't really watching violent movies yet. But I saw this trailer and it was super bloody and it looked like it was this really gritty war film. And that I just remember like the image like stuck in my head. And I did also see that clip. I remember seeing the clip where Hitler is like nine, 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 nine. And I knew who Hitler was because my dad is also a huge his- history guy. And he taught me who Hitler was when I was a kid. But um, that was the first time I was ever I remember being exposed to Quentin Tarantino but here's the crazy part. I realize I, my parents later on told me that that room that we stayed in was his room at the hotel. Like he was, that was his room that he always, that he would go like to he, when he would visit the when Bay he Area. Visit, he'd stay there. Yeah, I think it was the Bay Area. I it might have been it might have been Santa Barbara. Might have been. I I don't. I have to I have to confirm that. With my right, parents, right. But, but but it was his hotel room. Yeah. Interesting. And so when did you finally, so what was the first, because, you know, Tarantino ranges from, uh, Uh you know, there's a lot of range. I mean, a lot of people would argue this with me, but there is a lot of range there. I think so. A ton of range. I mean, he does different genres all the time. It's not always bloody and cursing, but sometimes it is. Jackie Brown is a very, I don't think it's a very violent movie. So which one came first and did your dad show Mm -hmm. you one? No. So... (laughs) Fast forward a couple of year, uh, four four years later, and Django Unchained is coming out in 2012, and I saw a trailer for that, 
And I thought that looked like the coolest fucking movie like of all time. I, it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, that trailer at that time. But I, I didn't see that movie yet. My dad was like, no, you're not seeing this. This is too much for you. And then I heard about Pulp Fiction maybe like a couple months after that because I had a friend in, in middle school who his older brother was super into movies and he had a whole DVD, he had a huge like Blu-ray collection and we would just raid his Blu-ray collection and watch movies. Um, but that year I saw Pulp Fiction. That was the first one I ever saw. Oh, you started with Pulp Fiction? I started with Pulp Fiction, yeah. And that's... Uh, Freaking anal rape? <laughs> yeah, no, no. And that was... What's so funny is that I, I asked my dad, I was like, can, can I see Pulp Fiction? And he's like, no, you're not seeing that. And I watched it anyway. <laughs> and he was specifically... Uh, he was specifically worried about the gimp scene. He didn't want me to see that. And I saw it anyway. <laughs> yeah. But that's my that's my all-time favorite movie. I feel you. Yeah. I feel you. That is it's uh it's a I'm not afraid to call that a masterpiece. It's uh it's I think so it's much greatest. originality, such such storytelling. I think it's like the greatest crime movie uh of all time. In my opinion. I I mean there's some other it's great. I mean obviously I crime movies. I'm of I mean, I'm, he's a little older than me, but, mm-hmm. but like, obviously I saw each film as they came out. So like the idea of, of watching his filmography, you know, after the fact as a young person, by the way, I'll just let you know, like, I'm really close with a lot of my nephews and nieces mm-hmm. and like I always waited like somewhere around 14, I'd be like. Okay, now I can show you Reservoir Dogs, Pulp yeah. Fiction, and Fight Club. Like, uh-huh. like we always watch movies together uh-huh. a lot because kids love movies. Yeah. But like, I was always like, "You're gonna hit an age where I can finally stop holding back." Uh, my dad was thinking the same thing, except I just went against whatever he said and I watched it anyway. Another movie that like that was A Clockwork Orange. I really wanted to see that film because I saw 2001. He showed me that. And I was like, who's the, like, I want to know more about Kubrick. And I saw the trailer for A Clockwork Orange online. And I really wanted to see that. And I asked my dad and he said no. And I, and I watched it anyway. <laughs> Where did that come from? Did you get that from your dad or just on your own? The idea, I remember, I don't know when, but mm-hmm. there's a transition, I think, for everyone where they realize, oh, it's that director name. Because, right, like, you first we get Mm -hmm. into actors, and I want to see all the films with said actor. Right, that's true. But then you realize, wait, if I want quality, Mm -hmm. I should look at the name of directed by and then watch all their stuff. That's interesting. He asked that. Steven Spielberg was, like, the first director. I I knew his his name. He's a household name. So I would just seek out his movies, specifically his movies. And then I saw 2001, and I heard about this Kubrick guy. And that was, and I, I think that was the movie that really made me think, oh, okay, this, this is a director's voice is here. Let me check out his other stuff, and you know, if he can, can he deliver the same amount of quality uh, as two thousand one? And surely enough, he does. You know, quite a few times. Quite a few times. He's one of my favorites too. Not always, be. but the hits are better than the misses. That's for sure. There's more hits Absolutely. than misses. His misses even are are like some pretty great stuff in there too. I think. For sure, for yeah. sure. And that gets you into the golden age of Hollywood if you start mm-hmm. watching, you know, what, Spartacus and yeah. Dr. Strangelove. It's actually, Spartacus is the only one I haven't seen of his. Oh, shit. I've seen all of his other ones. It fucking holds up. It just holds up. Yeah. Gladiator's just a sad excuse for Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry, uh, Mr. Scott. But anyway. <laughs> it's funny. I actually rewatched Alien last night. I love Alien. That's that's one of my favorite. I love really movies. Scott's a genius. I'm, yeah. I I ain't throwing anything at him. It's just nah, he's great. All right, so so you got into the Kubrick. Well, so you got into mm-hmm. Tarantino post Kubrick. Obviously, you were into Kubrick first. You said yes, I was into Kubrick first, and then Tarantino like, became your guy in high school. Yeah. You just you dove into he was that my guy. Yeah, and there was a lot to see at that point. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, uh, Hateful Eight came out when I was a freshman in high school and I didn't, it's funny. I didn't see hateful eight, uh, at the time it came out and I kind of regret not seeing it at the time, but when it was coming out was when the force awakens came out, it was literally like the same month. And I was so hyped for the force awakens. It was like, nothing else can get in the way of me seeing the force awakens. I'm going to see the force awakens. So I didn't really see the hateful eight until, uh, the next year. But there was a quite a bit of, of Tarantino films uh, that had come out. Um, I have a crazy story later about when I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, yeah, I have a crazy story about that. <laughs> cool. Well, so so that was inspiring. And then mm-hmm. it got into your writing, you said. Yes, it did. So I was just trying to like copy him and trying to write like him. And I really loved the idea of just doing different genres. I love that he... He can do a Western, he can do a crime movie, he can do a war movie. And then there's also a ton of humor. You know, they're like, they almost play like comedies, even though they're not comedies. They're always humor. Yeah. I recall an interview with him, and this might be inaccurate, but I can recall an interview with him where he was like, if I walked into a video store and they had Pulp Fiction in the comedy yes, section, put, I'd walk up and hug them. It's funny, he actually <laughs> said that about Reservoir Dogs. Oh, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, he did. But, but... Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I mean, Pulp Fiction is like almost a black comedy. I mean, even the stuff that's like not even supposed to be funny is funny. Or it, not, maybe not even supposed to be, but it's dramatic. But then if you really think about it, it's pretty funny. It's, it's, <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's a funny distinction, right? Because people like to categorize things by genre. Mm-hmm. But really, comedy means funny, entertaining, but... You know, if if a dark film is really entertaining, mm-hmm. it's f- kind of funny. And I mean, certainly, uh, you certainly. know, look, uh, the one the other guy wrote, but uh, but the um, the Christopher Walken watch scene, yes, <laughs> is one of the funniest monologues oh, ever hilarious. given, and it's deadpan and it's serious. Mm-hmm. And if you don't think that's brilliant comedy, you're an idiot. It's that's very judgy, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love I love that that whole seek that whole scene. So funny. And especially like he has this whole dramatic monologue about, you know, your dad was shot off of a Han- uh, in Hanoi like I'm like, you know, you're this is a very important watch and he, this is your birthright. And then after he says all that shit, he says, "Well, he needed a place to hide it cuz they were going to take it from him." And one place he knew was his ass. And right then it becomes, it's like hilarious. It's like, I just, you start dying laughing, but all, everything before that is like, a, he's taking it totally seriously and sincerely. And kudos to everyone involved. It, it continues to be serious and sincere mm-hmm. and he never, it's obviously funnier because Christopher Walken never 
ever. I love. I, I, yeah. I so I had to take this large, uncomfortable watch. Yeah. And put it in my <laughs> ass. And it's and it's not done for laugh, but it's so funny. Yeah. So, so funny. I agreed. Agreed. There's there's that humor in all of it. Two asses. It was in two. And then it's being handed to him, <laughs> and and he's told. You know, this is in your dead dad's ass and then my ass. Now you, you you should hold on to it. It's your birthright. And right. he does hold on and to it. And he holds on to it. And yeah. it's why he has to go back in that apartment. And it's the whole it's I mean, that's literally the name of the of the chapter is the the gold watch. That's the, the entire story of his is has to do with this watch that was up two guys' ass. <laughs> two asses. <laughs> It's, it's it's great. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, I mean, well, we could obviously we could talk about. That I love. Forever. I love that. Uh, see, you you're into you're into cool shit. So mm-hmm. thank you. So what have so in high school when you started shooting stuff? Mm-hmm. Fun was yeah. it? Uh, what how what were you shooting? Well, so in high school, I really wanted to cut my teeth on short films, and uh, whenever I went in that program at Calabasas High School, they would have assignments. So, you know, here's a narrative assignment, here's a non-narrative assignment, here's just an exercise assignment. I feel like every film school has those assignments. And, you know, you you do one and, and you're not really, you're learning, but you're not really doing the film for yourself. You're doing it for a grade. So I felt differently about the stuff that I was doing for school than I was doing for myself. And at some point, I really want, I mean, I think at like age 15... I really wanted to just do a film for myself and take it seriously and use the school's equipment, which, so that's what I did. And I wrote, I was thinking, what's the best short films that I've seen? And the best short films I had seen at the time were Pixar short films. So I decided to write one that I could do in live action. And so I wrote this very short film about this kid who has a lemonade stand and he is just trying to make some money so he can buy a bike. But his lemonade is terrible. And and people, you know, he's not getting any customers because of that. And um, then this man comes along, and this businessman, and he feels bad for the kid. And he tastes his lemonade. And he gives him some sugar. And they he puts the sugar in, and it mixes, and... Sooner or later, people start coming and drinking his lemonade and giving him money, and he eventually buys the bike. And that was my first short film, really, that I took seriously. And I was outside of school that I did that. I just used the school's equipment. I just asked my teacher, like, can I borrow this for, like, a weekend? I want to make this film. And he was like, absolutely, go and do it. Right, because the family camera was not nearly as good. Not even that. It was not nearly as good. Um I just had better access. I just had better access. I had access to something better, so I just wanted to use that more. Yeah, and, and you cut it and all that. You, I cut it myself. I, I, my mom got me Final Cut Pro for my birthday that year, and that's and I edited. That was the first time I ever edited really anything was on, was that film. Right, because you could have started with iMovie, but I, you know, actually that's not true. I did start with iMovie, uh, because when I was. Uh, a little younger, I did, I did, I would always shoot, uh, my parents on their vacations whenever we would go on vacation, I would use iMovie to cut something together, uh, using, yeah, with that. So I, I actually did learn to make a cut and, and transitions and add music on iMovie, but it got, I, I feel like I really learned how to 
pace of movie with with uh, Final Cut Pro. For sure, for sure, yeah. and it's a great program. Yeah, I like I love it a lot. Yeah. So then that short film, you show it to that teacher. I did, and he loved it, and he was like, "We should show this um, in class to everybody." <clears throat> and I was I was nervous. I was really nervous. I was like, "Oh my! All my classmates are going to see this film," but we showed it. And everybody really liked it. And it was a great moment for me. It was the first time I'd ever shown a movie of mine to like more than like 10 people. Right. Not just your friends or not just my oh, friends. By the way, yeah, uh, uh, I missed a chance to ask. Mm-hmm. So your dad is a cinema enthusiast. Mm-hmm. When you did, when did you first show him something you did? And like, what was his reaction? So uh, it was those family videos that I would, that I would cut together and I would put music to them. And he really was like, he was really supportive of it because he, he also saw when I was on these family trips, I would try to kind of create a story with the editing and he, he really loved it. He, he thinks of that as like, uh, oh, this is such a like special, like memory that I have with my son and I feel the same way. And then he's actually he actually is an actor in the short film that I showed to my class. He plays the businessman who gives the kid sugar to put in his lemonade. So, and I'm just going to ask you, yeah. I, this is a, this is a leading question. I'm sure. just, I'm just talking about your mom. How cool mm-hmm. is she? Cause we're talking mm-hmm. about how cool your dad is. I don't yeah, want to yeah, leave yeah. mom out. I'm no, sure mom, mom, I'm sure mom counts too. Mom. No, no mom is a huge, huge part. Um, mom is, is my mom is very uh, supportive of, you know, anything I do in film. She is, both my parents are lawyers. They're both attorneys. And so I, they, I've, I wasn't like raised in a house where, you know, we're an entertainment family. And I, I've known a lot of people who I've had friends who've uh, grown up in entertainment households, but that wasn't me. So my mom is, is a lawyer. Both my parents are lawyers. And, but my mom is also from Iran. So she's, not really like in Iran, there's not really like a culture of film as much. I mean, there is, but it's not, uh, it's not like Hollywood. It's not like living in LA. And so I guess to my mom, being a filmmaker was kind of more of a, I guess a far fetched thing, but she was always very supportive of it. And she just wanted me to be happy. And she could see that that made me happy. And to this day, she's always like my biggest supporter uh, after after the Sherman Oaks Film Festival she just told me how much like it was so great to see my film at a film festival on, on like a big screen so mom is a very important person uh, in this in my filmmaking career for sure for sure yeah they were at the screening both of them yeah ah, I wish yeah. I could have met him oh well yeah. hey and my grandparents were there too nice <laughs> yeah. very nice we had some other families there it's always cool when family's out mm-hmm. So excellent, good. I'm 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 glad I thought to glad prompt you, you to mention because obviously it's, yeah. it's not a it's a two person team. Yes, it is. Parenting absolutely. Parenting as a team is really helpful. They've been the best parents too. They've really been so supportive of me, and I oh I don't think I would be where I am at all without them. They they are they they are the reason uh, I'm where I'm at right now, for sure. I figure I got to wait another 10, 15 years to hear that. But anyhow, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so after high school, mm-hmm. 
Were you dead set on going to a, a undergraduate yes. film program? Yeah. So, well, d- well not to, after, but during high school, well, did you during, make up your mind? During high school, I actually remember specifically at the beginning of high school, I was like, I want to go to USC. Like f- my freshman year, eighth grade going into my freshman year, I was like, I'm going to go to USC. Because of Spielberg. And, because of, well, well, Spielberg didn't actually go, but because of Lucas. Right. I was going to yeah. say Spielberg and Lucas, but they, there's buildings named after them there. There right? are, yeah. Which is ironic to me because Steve Spielberg got rejected from USC. Yeah. Didn't go to college at all, right? Just no, started he did. working on the lots. He actually did uh, go to oh, Long Cal- Beach. He went yeah. to Cal State Long Beach, yeah. and he was there. I don't know how long, not very long. <laughs> yeah, but then he started working at Universal. Um, but during high school, so that short film that I did uh, was called "When Life Gives You Lemons," and I submitted that. There was somebody, uh, one of my grandmother's like neighbors, saw the film. And said, oh, you know, Justin should submit this to the California State Summer School for the Arts, which is held at CalArts. And uh, my school, also my teacher, I asked him about it. And he was like, yeah, this is a fantastic program. We had one of our uh, one of my students last year went uh, and he loved it. He thought it was fantastic. So you should really do this. You should really like submit to it. And it was kind of perfect because my film was supposed to be like a live action Pixar film or a short film. And that's where Pixar even originated. It was a, was that's, that that's where Lasseter went, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, I submitted it and I got in and it was, and then I went to Cal arts for that whole summer, uh, in 2017, I was 16 years old and I learned so much more about filmmaking, uh, there so much more. I met a lot of great people and, uh, I had a controversy there also. <laughs> this is one of my favorite like stories to tell because uh, it really was an important moment for me just as a filmmaker and as an artist. When I was there, I made a film. I tried to make a noir film while I was there, like a black and white, you know, kind of dark noir film. And uh, I had a shot where I was revealing the, like, my, the femme fatale character. And I started the shot from her face feet and I went up her legs to her face to reveal her and I showed that to the class at Cal Arts which by the way you know they're a very liberal school but I showed that to them and they were gobsmacked at at me they thought that was so wrong of me to do they they were like you can't you you're objectifying women you're doing this you're doing that this is all wrong you can't do that and to me I was like I was I was gobsmacked. I was like, "What the fuck?" You know. Um, well, for better or worse, you could also name seventeen thousand films with that shot. Exactly. That's that's. <laughs> I was like, I was like, "What?" Like, so they were in the world of of we've got to change the way film works. Yes, and you know that's. I think that's a good thing in moderation. I don't think it's uh, necessarily a bad thing, but I felt at the time it was very limiting. At the time, I. I was like, this is a noir film. This is like how new, noir films do. It's, you know? So I showed that it was super controversial. And there was, one, there was one particular student who was super passionate about grilling me uh, in front of the class. I was vilified in front of the class. And after, after that vilification, um, I went to my teacher uh, at, at the CalArts program and Actually, I didn't go to him. He brought me in. He, he, was, he was like, can I talk to you after class? And I did. And he said to me, 
listen, Justin, like, what do you want to say with your films? What, what is the, what is your goal? What is like the message you're trying to say? And as a 16 year old, I had no fucking clue. I was like, the fuck? I mean, what do you mean? Like, am I trying to say something? What am I trying to say? It's something about mental health or, you know, some, some issue. That's, and my answer to him was, I just want to make a good movie. I just want to make something entertaining for myself. And they, and he and two other teachers were like, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. You need to know, you need to know what you're going to do. And so I really, so they're telling a 16 year old mm -hmm. that cinema is not valid if it's made for entertainment purposes. That's what it sounded like to me at the time. Like they were literally yeah. like, no, you must be social justice oriented. I felt, I, I think what they were Which really I, saying. Which, by the way, I mean, I don't know if you know, I'm a mm -hmm. huge proponent. Mm -hmm. I actually, I'm probably an SJW, as, as people like to call them. Yeah. But I still appreciate <laughs> everything, like, as art, you know. Of I course, mean, yeah. Not all art has to have a point. It's nice when it does. Mm -hmm. And I could argue with a lot of people about some of Tarantino's, like, value. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, but to tell a 16-year-old... You shouldn't go into cinema if your goal is to entertain. Mm -hmm. I thought I mean, it was bullshit. I mean, your freaking heroes are Spielberg and Lucas and Kubrick yeah. and Tarantino. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, entertainment was first. And then, you know, well, by the way, actually, I could go on and on about George Lucas. Actually, mm -hmm. I think Star Wars was originally written just as a analogy to nuclear war. Like the Death Star was nuclear mm -hmm. annihilation of a planet. Mm -hmm. And he just made a great analogy to the threat that we all lived under back then that someday right. every human being could get killed right now. Right, yeah. Like we were really worried about it in the 70s, <laughs> 60s too. So, mm -hmm. like, I thought it was a great analogy, mm -hmm. but he still, his number one thing was to entertain. Absolutely. And I was really surprised by what they said to me. Looking back, I think what they were really trying to say to me was, it could be entertainment, but you have to have something more. And, you know, that's subjective, in my opinion. Heck, I might have said to you, have you seen that shot in a movie before? And you would have said, yeah. And I said, so why don't you do something new? <laughs> <laughs> I think they, they might have said that to me. I, I don't remember specifically, but I, at the time I was really like, oh, my God, what the fuck is going on? Like, I'm, I can't make this because of this stupid agenda. And I... I was, I went back to my dorm and I told my two like roommates what had happened. And later on, I tried, like we had another project we were doing after that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try and do better. I'm going to try and do better. And I came up with a comedy film that I don't really, I, like it, it was a comedy film about because I saw people were I, one one of my friends that was trying to was trying to use hypnotism. He was like experimenting with hypnotism, and I thought that was funny. So I made a movie about that about someone who gets hypnotized, and then I showed that to my class. And weirdly enough, the teachers thought that that was a better movie than the noir one. Um, there wasn't anything in it that I, I it wasn't I didn't think there was anything in the in the noir movie that was offensive or anything. Um, but there was even less of that in uh, this comedy film that I made. So they praised the comedy film, and I and I thought the comedy film was fine. I mean, I was still learning. I I didn't know 
I didn't know. I'd never made a comedy before. So they then. praised it for the filmmaking, or was there some they was pra- there some no, analogy, no. some meaning they, to they, it that they praised? They praised that it wasn't the the movie before. Oh, that was all. So they were trying to they. Yeah. Shoot, I'm just gonna like put thoughts in their head. <coughs> Excuse me, and think. Oh, good. They were like, "Oh man, we were a little too hard on them last time. Let's make up for it." <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know if it was that. I think <laughs> to be it, it came off as. So finally, you made something that wasn't that didn't offend people. Congratulations! And so that ex- whole experience at CalArts was a great experience. I had a, I I made a lot of great friends there, and I still have friends from that program. Um, but that was the first time I ever really experienced controversy with any of my work, and that was a really important uh, experience to me now. Like later on, looking back. And were you aware that I mean, there was always controversy around a bunch of your heroes. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, it's not, to me, it's not a Tarantino movie if there's not some controversy. I he every single movie that he's made has been controversial, every single one. Um, so I, I had no. I almost wanted that. Like I almost wanted like to make something that was challenging, because controversy. I don't think is it can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. So I just want to start a conversation. And that, that's what I think Tarantino does. He starts a conversation. and um, But yeah, Kubrick was also the same way. He had controversial movies. Um, Lucas, the prequel. Scorsese. Scorsese, would. oh my God, certainly. Yeah. Last Temptation of Christ was like voted most controversial movie ever, I think, at the Paul time. Paul Schrader never shied away from it. No, not at all. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's a, a lot of great. And I mean, I, I mean... I think Greta Gerwig doesn't shy from controversy. No, I don't think so. You know, either. nor does I can't name the woman who directed Saltburn, but uh, Emerald Fennel. Yeah, and talk about embracing controversial moments and scenes. I mean, uh-huh. so yeah, there's the idea that controversy is a no one should ever say controversy is a negative. No, I mean, I think there's it's the discussion is what's important. You know, the discussion about. The, about whatever issue it's talking about is important. And I think that's a great movie when it can do that, which, funny enough, I think is uh, more aligned with what my teachers at CalArts were saying. They were trying to, you know, push that you need to have a message, but I think really what they what they meant was the right answer, which is what I think they should have said was, you want to be able to start a, a conversation about something. So... Um, but yeah, and that was between eleventh and twelfth grade. Mm, that was between tenth uh, and eleventh grade. Tenth and eleventh. Wow, but, but damn after, early. Yeah, I was six. Yeah, I was sixteen years old. Um, but the next year, the summer after I went to CalArts, I went to NYU Tisch for a summer program, and that was a very different program from from CalArts. It wasn't um, as much of a like because at CalArts they were very like be arti- like an artistic kind of space. NYU is a more a little more conservative and more about the like the craft of making a film and the technical, which I think was great for me at the time. So I went there and I have I I still have friends that I met from there. One of my one of my best friends uh, I met there, and he's a filmmaker also. He's a writer director, and he was actually at the screening uh, for Reseda. And he's trying to make his first feature film right now, and so am I. I actually produced his film. His name is Cole Swanson, 
and I produced his short film uh, during the pandemic, and that was a great experience. Like he's one of my best friends and and collaborators. Very cool that yeah. in high school you were aware of these summer programs and and mm-hmm. and really expanded things. All right, so then. So then with those two summer programs, mm-hmm. clearly film school was going to be, you were yeah, going to be, an, you were going to be a was, film major undergrad. You weren't going to wait yes. for a master's. No, no. I was going to go to film school. I really was, like I said at the beginning, I was really trying to get into USC. And I thought that there was a moment where I was like, oh, I could go to NYU um, because of that program. And they, at the time they said almost everybody who did that summer program would get in. And I I thought about it and I really was like, well, I really want to go to USC. I think that's where I want to be. And I like LA. I don't really want to live in New York. I love visiting New York, by the way. Fantastic city. But I I like living in LA. I'm an LA guy. And I wanted to go to SC. And so I had these two programs. And by the way, these two programs gave me college credit while I was in high school. And so that was on my resume. my And I put that on my application to Chapman and USC. And uh, I didn't get into USC. And I was really disappointed at the time. I, then I appealed it, and I still didn't get in. So, and I didn't get into Chapman either. So, and I didn't, I didn't end up going to at NYU, even though I think I could have gotten in. But I didn't end up going because I wanted to stay in L.A. And I liked the network in L.A. Could I, you know... The network was important, and I and I didn't know this because this was before the pandemic. But when the pandemic happened, we were all online anyway. So, but I didn't. It was really disappointing not to get into USC. Um, but my dad told me something. Both my parents actually said this to me. They said to me, "Wherever you go, you're going to make that your USC. You're going to make that your USC. You're going to do whatever you would have done at USC at, at whatever school you go to." And so uh, the, I only really got into three schools because uh, in high school, you know, I was, a, I feel like I was a good student. I'd never got a C in any of my classes. I only got A's and B's, but I, it wasn't, I don't think it was enough to get into like a school like USC. I think that was the problem. They've gotten to the point where, yeah, they, it, it's, Someone would have to listen to someone else's podcast. I could name that guy Scott Galloway. Should listen, everyone should hearing this should listen to what he says about higher education in America because in the USA, higher education has tried to become a luxury brand, and they intentionally let yeah. in too few students to go higher in the rankings. Right, and so they've gotten to the point that they're not about education; they're about mm-hmm. status, the brand. Yeah, and and it's it's a real bummer because. Every one of these schools has the kind of endowment that they could ha- accept 10 times as many freshmen, including 10 times as many uh, impoverished kids, mm-hmm. and really just lift a generation. Right. And instead, uh, you know, they let in whatever, 1,200 kids mm-hmm. to Harvard because they want one out of uh, 700 apl- applicants to get in so mm-hmm. they can show U.S. News and World. Uh, anyway, so. Mm-hmm. So you said you got into three. I got into three schools. I got into, and they're all Cal States. I got into Cal State Long Beach, Cal State Fullerton, and Cal State Northridge and ended up committing to Cal State Northridge. And well, that was because it was just closer and easier or you liked was, the program best? It was, it was actually both. The program, 
was I did my research and it was actually a very good program for uh for Cal State. It was even in like the top twenty five film schools uh in the country. So you know, I, I think I great. did. I say it at your. Uh, I think you did. I might have said it during the Q and A or just to you when you told me. But yeah, yeah. I, I I've met a lot of really great filmmakers out of CSUN. Yeah, and it's a good school. Um, I so I went to Cal State Northridge, but actually, but the summer before I went to Cal State Northridge, so my summer going from high school to college, it was really important to me that because I didn't get into USC, that I would get an industry job. I would I would do something in the industry to get an internship. I actually remember being in high school, like my last semester of high school, and I was looking for internships as a high schooler. And usually these internships are for people in already in college and people who are maybe even out of college. But like PA type stuff or at a, a post house kind of internship? No, 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 no. I was looking for like a production like company, like like a like Warner Brothers. Like I was right, right. Like I applied to Warner Brothers as an intern as a high schooler. Like when I was like 17 or actually, no, I think I was 18 because I think that was like the minimum you could be, but I was trying and I, I did get, end up getting two internships that were not paid. Of course, uh, during that summer, one of them was in Beverly Hills at a company called Emmett Furla films. Uh, the two guys who, who ran it, I don't know if they still run it. Uh, Randall Emmett is a pretty famous producer. He produced, at the time, he produced The Irishman. He was one of the producers on that. And that was the same year that The Irishman came out. Um, he also, I think he produced Silence by Scorsese. But he does a lot of low-budget uh, action flicks. And he usually with, like, Bruce Willis or... Uh, I think Robert De Niro's been in a couple of his, too. So I did an internship with them. And that was the first industry job, quote-unquote job, because I wasn't getting paid that I ever had. And that was very interesting. They, I saw how hard they worked me. They worked me very hard and I was reading scripts all day and doing personal errands. And I also didn't drive at the time (laughs) and I didn't tell them that I didn't drive, but they found out, uh, I didn't get fired thankfully, but I just Ubered everywhere. Right. So you just Ubered your, your brains out. Yeah, my parents, I feel so bad that they My understanding is, that. I mean, I, whatever, I, I'm aware that, like, the younger generation, people don't drive as, people are not as enthusiastic about driving as they used to be. It used to be the true. day, my generation, the day you turned 16, you got your license, mm-hmm. or you or you just, you just needed it. Yeah. But there was no Uber, and public transit was worse back then, mm-hmm. and yeah, now you can kind of get away without it. Yeah, you can. I, I got away without it uh, for a while. And eventually I got my license, and I'm very happy I did. <laughs> it took a while to get my license, just to tell you. It took me like four times to get my license. Yeah. yeah. So you had this great internship, which was a good introduction to... To the industry, to, yeah. And to show that you're like you're willing to do the crap jobs, right? Because oh, that's yeah. how they treat everybody. They always, mm-hmm. they always bring in a, a young person, and they're like, all right... Let's see how much you really want this. Right. And then there was another internship I did, which was totally remote. Uh, that was for a producer named John Fogel. And all I did was script coverage. I didn't do anything more than that. So, by the way, I'm derelict to not say. Mm-hmm. So I will say that uh, reading scripts is the best way to learn how to write better. 
Oh, totally. I I read a lot of crap. So so you you sat down and that was like that was an excellent. That summer was an amazing class on screenwriting. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I saw I and also it was really refreshing to me as like an eighteen year old as as a very fresh adult to see what is a what what is a script in Hollywood that gets submitted to a company. What does that look like, and how well does it does it read so i saw that that was a big thing and then that influenced how i would write my scripts later on or just because sometimes i would see these scripts and i would see these huge passages of of action and it was so nerve it was like so like it's overwhelming as a reader to read that so now in all my screenplays i try to spread it out more and make it easy for a person to read like if you saw the page it's like Okay, this looks. Oh, thank God, this, this looks actually easy to read. Thank fucking God, because there were so many times when I was at those two internships where I looked at a page and I'm like, "God damn it, I have to read this whole shit." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and when you're doing an internship like that, you can't just say, "I stopped on page 20 because this was a piece of crap." Like you've got to finish it, which right. is I had which to finish is, it, <laughs> which is a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, dang. So. That was, but that was, but it was. And you a great knew class. you were, you knew you were gonna be in Northridge at the end of that I summer. Did, yeah. So you I did. did these internships pre-college, but you knew where you were going. That's right. Yeah. One of them, I, the remote one, I actually was still doing during college because his John Fogel's internship was. Uh, I just he would just send me a script maybe like, one like once every two weeks, so it was pretty light work. But right. But I would still read the entire thing and then give him a coverage. So I still did that during college. I did that for a while, actually. Um, but I never met him, which is weird. <laughs> I never met him. Well, it, I can remember being online. young, too. When you're young, you can read. You can, like, mm-hmm. like people, if someone asked me to read a screenplay today, I'm like, how long is it? Because forget it. Like, mm-hmm. I just can't. I can't. But when I was young, I could read a whole 120-page script overnight. Wow. And, and you know write a bunch of notes and give someone help how to rewrite it the next day. Like I could do an all nighter. Mm-hmm. Like now someone handed me a screenplay. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> bring it to me when it's a film. Yeah. It's hard. It's, I think it's hard to get people to read a screenplay just because it's not a book. I mean, it's not like a piece of, I mean, I mean, so I used sweet. to love it, but that was when I was young. Like, uh-huh. like you get over it. You, you, there's a time limit. Trust me. Whenever, whenever my, uh, whenever I have a new script, um, a new feature script, I always, and I want my friends to read it. I bring them over to my house and I have them read it in front of me. And so I can hear the laughs and everything, but I think just turning it into a kind of like ritual made it easier to, to read. And do you print it out or do you have them read it? That's a big difference. Gotta have a hard copy. I've I've had people, I've told people, if you want me to read it, Give me a hard copy. You got to print it out. I agree. Because if it's on the computer screen, it's competing with email and everything else. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, forget it. Mm -hmm. In fact, for festival submissions, I watch everything on the TV because uh, computer is way too distracting. I agree. I agree. I prefer people to watch my films on the biggest screen that they can. Oh, yeah. 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 And with, with hopefully, you know. I don't mind a film that the first uh, before the film begins says, put down your phone, please. <laughs> I've seen that a couple of times. Good for them, honestly. <laughs> yeah, why not, right? Why not? Yeah. 
so yeah, uh, went to Cal State Northridge and my, I did my first semester. And then during the, there was a quarter into my second semester, pandemic hits. And, you know, we're all at home where it's like, what the fuck is going on? And my friend. Right. So you yeah. started fall of 2019. Yes. And then right. your second semester of college. Yeah. So the world stops. That's right. Yeah. Damn. It was, a, it was, oh man, it was a tough, it was a tough pill to swallow for me. It was like, just, ugh. I was so excited to go to film school too. So excited. And that happened. But here's the cool thing too. My friend Cole Swanson, who I went to NYU with, came to me right before the pandemic hit with a script uh, for a short film. And he asked me if I wanted to produce it. And I'd never produced really anything i was just writing and directing and i was still trying i was still like you know dabbling in editing and cinematography but i was really set on being a writer director and he asked me to produce this film and then the pandemic hits and i needed something to do i needed something to do badly and i thought what better way to do what thing to do than to produce a film or to make a film and that's what we did. We made his film during the pandemic. And that was very difficult. <laughs> this is a super difficult thing to do. Um, but we raised the money. We, we raised the money on Indiegogo. And we shot the film for four days. And it was, it was really good. And then, then it ended up going to festivals and it got nominated by HBO. The name of the short is called Baby, which is, a, which is a, about a a young black father who um, his girlfriend mysteriously leaves one day and leaves uh, uh, him and their child. And he's just trying to navigate fatherhood. And it was, a, it's a great little short and it really set my friend Cole up. He, he's, he's done great since that film and it got nominated by HBO and it went to Rhode Island Film Festival, went to Harlem Film Festival, Martha's Vineyard. Uh, so that did great, and that was a good that was a good uh, credit for me as a producer, as a filmmaker, and uh, as a and you know that was the first producing credit I ever had. The budget for that was about twenty thousand. So I was nineteen years old, raising twenty thousand dollars for a short film during the pandemic. <laughs> did that almost help because? Like the world had stopped for a while and people were like, I think so. I can't go to the movies. I can't do this. I can't do that. Heck, I'll send them 500 bucks or something. That's what I, I, I think that definitely was a factor of it. I mean, we thought this was going to be, the, this is going to be fucking impossible to do. This is going to be, but I, I was very like, well, I don't give a shit. We're going to, we're going to keep going. We're going to do it. And, uh, I think people were, I was genuinely very surprised, uh, by how many people wanted to support us even during a pandemic. No less. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of, I'm going to say something, whatever. Mm -hmm. Everyone was walking around at the beginning of COVID saying, like, your age (laughs) was the age that didn't have to worry too much. (laughs) Right. Everyone was worried about the elderly and the super young and those with comorbidities or or problems. Mm -hmm. But everyone was like, most of us were like, well, the the nineteen year olds can take it. Yeah. <laughs> if they get if they get sick, they'll bounce back. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Like like so. I could yeah. I could see people being like, yeah, go go do this. Go go stay busy. You're 
College freshman, for Pete's sake. Yeah, also, you have to realize, too, this was before the vaccine. This was fresh out, of, like, during, like, beginning of the pandemic. We were trying to make this movie. Um, and we tested everybody on set. And nobody got COVID. We had one little COVID scare. Was that we, back when you had to, like, get in car lines to get tested? Yes, yes. This was in, uh, we fil- we started filming Baby in September of 2020. This is like... Yeah, there weren't even the home kits yet. No. I remember the freaking ordeal to get tested. Yeah. It was a pain in the ass. It was, Yeah, there, you're right. There was no home kits. You had to go to the uh, urgent care to go and get a test. So it was it was stressful. But we, we got through it, and, it, and the short did great. And so after the short, I'm still in college, and I'm online school. And I uh, kind of did the same thing in that I did in high school where, you know, there was an assignment uh, at school to make a film. And I did that. And I felt, you know, I'm just doing this for a grade. It's not, this isn't something I consider part of my filmography. And I'm just kind of learning on it, learning with some better equipment. But um, yeah, and I got, I got offers to produce some other short films during that time that I turned down. Because after I did Baby, I was like, I really want to be a writer-director. I don't want to be a producer. So I turned down some producing jobs. And I'm glad I did because I was able to focus a lot more on on what I wanted to do. And so I was trying to do the same thing uh, that I did in high school or try to make a film um, for myself outside of school. Um, But it took a long time to get there. I... I didn't really do it until my last year of college because I was there was a short I was trying to get made and it just wasn't time to do that one. It was going to be super expensive and it wasn't really getting off the ground. And I at some point got so frustrated that I was like, well, fuck it. I just need to make something now. And that film was Reseda. That's the movie. So and that, you made it outside of school. Made it outside of school, yeah. Yeah, because you just wanted to. I just wanted to. And so, you wanted to make a film, or you happened to like come up with that idea, and you're like, this is the idea I want to do. Well, and, it, yeah. and it just wouldn't. So the program at CSUN was mm-hmm. such that like you couldn't do that for a class. Like The classes were had specific yeah. parameters yeah, they had that parameters. sort of got in your way a little? Certainly. Um, I guess... Uh, yeah, there were parameters I couldn't do it for school, but I also didn't want to do it for school because I knew I was going to feel differently about it. I knew I was going to approach it differently uh, than I would something that was for myself. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So so for school with the whole grade thing and knowing you're going to... Yeah. Cause there's was like that a, a little informed by the CalArts thing? <laughs> informed by... What do you mean? Well, like in CalArts, you kind of learn... There's some things you can do for yourself, and there's some things that you, you can, can present do. in class. Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, yeah. Because I could see you getting some shit for some of the stuff in Reseda. Oh, yeah, and I have. <laughs> but um, the uh, I, I was the film I was going to do before Reseda, because to answer your question, uh, was a feature film I wrote before, and uh, I wanted to do that. And I was going to do a short film version of that feature. And it was just too expensive and I wasn't ready to do it. That film uh, I'm going to do later on, though. I'm saving that for when I've made two features already. Because it's also a period piece. So 
I'm saving that one. But I was so frustrated. I tried very hard to get it made and uh, it does, what didn't work. But I and I but I always have feature ideas. I've always wanted like since I was like in middle school, I was thinking about feature movies, feature movie ideas. Um, so I always wanted to make features and Reseda was a feature idea I had. And after this other short film didn't work out, I was like, okay, I'm just going to make a short for Reseda then. And it was a, it was actually one of the best decisions I've ever made uh, in my entire life was deciding to pivot. And my friend Cole, who did baby, uh, he, I talked to him about this. And he was like, yeah, you, you got to pivot. You got to, you got to do this. You got to do this because this is going to actually set you up to do that, that thing that you want to do first. So he helped me realize that. And I, that I did Reseda and it's done great. It's my favorite thing I've ever made so far. Excellent. Yeah. And you, uh, so we were your L.A. premiere, but not World. So you played some other festivals first and whatnot? So, um... Because you said online. you've taken some shit for it, so I'm I wondering, have, yeah. I'm wondering, like, yeah, you yeah. know, have you... What was the festival reaction? Well, well, when I say that, I mean, like, I've gotten shit from... Kind of, like, because I would show it in my class, too. So I would hear, I would hear some... And I would show it to individuals. But I did a premiere... I did premiere online... Uh, at the liftoff Los Angeles liftoff film festival. And I also submitted the feature script, uh, to some, to, uh, I don't don't remember, but, but I've gotten some, but I got feedback from those and some people were saying, Oh, this is like, why are you doing this type of humor? You know, this isn't really like, Oh, like you shouldn't be doing this. This is too cheap or whatever. And I just, I really disagree with them. I actually think it's kind of, I don't think it's cheap at all. I, I think it's funny. I think it's more, I think it's like a, it's coming from the characters, the humor. So I don't really consider it to be cheap, but the, uh, I've gotten some shit for it. Just, but not, not a lot, you know, I've gotten some, but most people love, love this movie. Most people really enjoy it. And I'm very happy that they do, but I really made it for myself. I really, I'm the first audience member that I think about. And I'm glad I did it that way. Excellent. Excellent. And that is, I mean, I'm sure such a rote thing to say, but, but you should just make thing, you know, if you want to succeed, you should make something you want to see. Yeah. And totally. Maybe it communicates to others and maybe it doesn't, but Mm -hmm. if you try to please an imaginary audience who you're not, Mm -hmm. then you're, you've, you've got, you've got nothing. I agree. Yeah. I think a lot of I think most movies that aren't very good are made are trying to be trying to be made for someone else or so for an audience. For sure. And and the heroes that everyone loves. I mean, look, I did I've admitted it in public before. I'm not a Spielberg fan, Mm -hmm. but I get it. What appeals to him appeals to lots of people. people. But you can still tell he's making it because that's yeah, yeah, he has that sense of wonder. He has that sense of uh, you know, almost a childlike view of the world of that that's just that's just it works. Mm -hmm. It works. And also there's a um the director who made the Les Miserables, the the musical one from two thousand twelve with Hugh Jackman, he actually says, I make movies for an audience. I don't really make them for me. But I think that movie 
is a, and I think that's a good movie. I really like. Well, I thought people film. generally hated it. The Les Misérables one. Did people like it? I think it was nominated at the Oscars at the time. Yeah, that just means it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was an Oscar Oscar jab. <laughs> well, um, I liked that movie, but then he made a movie called Cats, which I know people hated. So I don't know. I mean. I guess it just whatever works for you, whatever works for that filmmaker. But I think in general, yeah. But that's a gig. He he took two gigs where you're taking one of the mo- the some of the most famous musicals of all time and adapting them. That's right. That's so true. it certainly couldn't be unless he's like I'm the biggest Les Mis fan ever mm-hmm. and the biggest Cats fan ever. Then maybe you're making it for yourself. But yeah, if that's your job to adapt something, mm-hmm. I should probably look him up because I, I wonder if I know who it is, but. He also did, uh, I think he directed that movie that was also nominated called The King's Speech. I think his name is Tom. Oh, The King's Speech yeah. person. I think Got his name it. is Tom, Tom Hooper. I think that's his name. Well, either way. Yeah. It's a good gig. Yeah, it's definitely a great I'm gig. I'm sure the paycheck kicked ass to I'm make sure. those films. Doesn't matter how weird Cats turned out. Uh-huh. By the way, like people shat on that film. I didn't see it. Uh-huh. And I once had tickets to see the show Cats, and I didn't go because... It's my level of interest in people wearing tights, uh-huh. pretend to be cats. Yeah. But, like, what else were they going to do? Not have people in tights looking like cats? Like, right. it was an That's adaptation. What it is. Yeah. Like, everyone was critical of how creepy it was. I'm like, well, but that was the show. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, what, you expected them to do CGI and have them look realistic? Right. And I also think, you know, as much as people do shit on that movie, it has a lot of fans in a kind of. Uh, non ironic like in an in, a, in an ironic sense like they watch it as like this is so bad it's funny oh is it the new showgirls the so bad it's good film yeah kind of yeah which i've had people defend showgirls uh-huh. i have not revisited it for 30 years but uh-huh. or however old it is i still think it's cool that the movie has a fan base even if you know i mean the room is like the biggest example of like the best worst film ever made but the fans are so into it I've they still show it in Westwood. I think at midnight. I've never still, been. Oh, you haven't seen I, it? I haven't seen it in the theater. I've seen it like at home. But people have told you then you haven't seen it, right? Because yes, it's like Rocky Horror. It's it's a right. it's the reason people, people th- love it. It's interactive. Yeah, I know people th- throw like plastic spoons at the at every the, time you see the spoon on the wall. But I love I love that the fans are so passionate about it. I love that they are interacting with the movie in a way that. You know, Marvel fans even interact with the movie. They don't throw spoons, but, you know. Yeah, but more so even. No, no, it's... And to his credit, Tommy Wiseau Mm -hmm. fucking embraced the badness. He took that film seriously (laughs) for about five minutes. Then as soon as everyone started laughing at it, he said, yeah, it's funny. Like, instead of fighting (laughs) it, he went with it. That's true, And it's made him very wealthy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Good for him. Good for him, seriously. But no one's... No one's ever made a pivot like that. No one ever will again, right? It was a one-time deal. I don't know. (laughs) The the worst film possible made by a complete amateur. And the amateur goes, oh. It's a comedy. I guess I'm not... uh, (laughs) I guess I'm not Kubrick. I might as well make the most of it. Good for him. I respect it. I respect it a lot. Yeah. It is is what it is. Mm -hmm. Heck, I even like the thing Franco did, uh, the, the disaster, disaster artist. artist. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was just interesting to see a fictionalized or not fictionalized, but a dra- dramatized version of the story of how it got made. 
and it's very funny. <laughs> yeah. The person I feel got the least out of that film was the lead actor. The, the, the woman who was the lead actress, she, uh, mm. boy, that film made her look terrible. But anyhow, mm-hmm. and Tommy got all the money. I hope, I bet she didn't have in her contract to get 2% of all receipts, no. man. That would have, oh, she'd be set for life. Yeah. Bummer. When that thing in the side of her throat keeps popping out in that scene, uh-huh. that tendon, dear Lord. Anyway. All right. So mm-hmm. we, we got through Reseda uh-huh. and, uh, and you're really happy with it and proud of it. Very. Yeah. And I think it's cool. And I get so, and you know, I mean, we discussed it at the festival. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, oh, so, so here's my, yeah. So my argument is that I don't see him as dumb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can do spoilers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like good. the weed's not where he left it. I don't think, <laughs> do you th- are you saying he definitely forgot where he put all the weed or did someone take it? I don't, oh, don't want to say that. I don't want to say that because I love whenever people come right. up to me and are like, this is what I think happened to the weed. Like there was, there was a lot of people af- after the Sherman Oaks Film Festival that came up to me and were like, what happened to the weed? And I was like, well, what do you think happened? And they would tell me they, a lot of people think that his roommate smoked it. And I think that's a great, uh, it's valid. That's a valid, that's a valid, uh, smoked assumption. it or took it. And smoked some and gave some away. Who knows? But, Who knows, right. But I don't think it necessarily makes you stupid that someone rips you off. No, I don't think so. I think he's more of a victim of circumstance in that in that. Like case. you say, yeah, he's your Larry David. Mm-hmm. But I really do love his performance. Thank I really you. do. Yeah. I do really do love the vibe of like that expression on his face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I gotta admit, I think uh, you see yourself in him. Do I see myself in Syl? Um, not really in the... Because you kind of did the thing where you cast an actor who's reminiscent of you. Is that true? Do you Physically, think so? yeah. Physically? Wow. Like, you know what I mean? That's interesting. Like, like sometimes... He's my, he's my best friend in college. Is he's the, is your best friend. That, sometimes, yeah. sometimes it feels like a director has a performer... Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, who is like who's like the director, or like yeah, seems, or or, or like you can director. just see you can see the connection. Like, well, that's good. I mean, that's great. I never, you know, no one has really told me that before, but I kind of I see what you're. I'm saying. sitting here and talking to you, and I'm yeah. like, you know, because you kind of chill, you're kind of a little low key, and he's yeah. he might be an exaggeration of your personality, right? Of like, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this: I don't think that I'm. I don't think we have the same personality, but the idea that we're like, I've been a victim of circumstance before. I think everybody has. And I just think it's so funny, especially, you know, living in the Valley is, you know, you, there's so many crazy people in the Valley. Oh my God. It's filled with crazy people and, and interesting people. And I think that's really what he's a victim of. And I've been a victim of that. So, um, yeah, I and you certainly show way. your flair for character throughout the whole film. I mean, the whole film is just filled with Character, memorable yeah. characters, and That's we talked about doing. we talked about how you uh, used wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love. Uh, that's one of my things about making a film is I, I get I love creating the characters. I love creating interesting people, and they always surprise me. I don't have them like really figured out at all before I write the script. While I'm writing the script, I'm figuring out who they are. Like, I didn't know that, um, I didn't know that Syl was, cause Syl at one point tells his roommate to shut the fuck up after his roommate is like, well, dude, aren't you a drug dealer? <laughs> and I didn't know that Syl was going to lash out at him like that. I had no idea. 
And then I wrote it down and he did it. And um, so I think he has a bit of an anger issue or, you know what I'm saying? But that's, that's the best kind of writing, right? When it just surprises you, when, yes. when you, when you create the characters and then they just talk to each other in your head on right. the page. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's real writing. Yeah. It's not, it's not overly manipulative. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I think it's very, uh, I will say though, in the feature film, a uh, script for Rosita, there's a lot more with Syl, a lot more. And I, and I think he's more of an idiot there. Like he doesn't make the best decisions in the feature film. In the short film, it's really like a, it's just a flavor. It's just a taste of what the feature is. But, uh, you know, because it's a short film, there's not a lot of time to really get in depth uh, to his character. But the the short film, the story in the short film is a sequence in the feature film. And it's much longer in the feature. And it plays out a little differently just because, you know, it's a feature. But he's more of an idiot uh, in the feature for sure. Fair enough. All right. So then, then my, my saying, my saying that... We don't get enough of the doofus character, mm-hmm. the lovable, the lovable fool, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But I will, uh, whatever. I, I mean, not to be ageist, but by definition, when we're young, we're ignorant. You know what I mean? Like, like, I, I like no matter how smart <laughs> young agree. people are, uh-huh. like, believe me, I've talked to like, you know, I got a niece who's 25 and she's like, I cannot, we had lunch a couple of weeks ago and she's like. I can't believe how dumb I was at 20. <laughs> I'm like, you realize at 30, you'll say that about 25. And at 35, you say that about 30. Wow. Like, I'm like, <laughs> it actually doesn't end. At 55, I'm like, damn, I wasn't that smart a couple years ago. You know what I mean? Like, like it never stops. It never ends. That's it actually funny. never ends until, you know, the universe kicks in and, and your brain starts to go from senility and or whatever. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you start stop being stop getting wiser and you just wow. become childlike again if you're lucky or unlucky i don't know wow yeah i mean people when they're young i, I think it's funny whenever a, a young person and i've been you know guilty of this thinking that there's that they're that they know everything which that in itself is probably not very smart <laughs> by definition though yeah. we all think we know i mean Mm-hmm. She doesn't listen to this, so I can say it. I got a 16-year-old daughter, and she's like, she thinks she knows everything now. She's, she's quite confident that she knows more than us, and wow. it's funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but love her, love her to death. She's mm-hmm. cool. She's cool. That's great. All right, so should we gloss over that you said you've taken some shit for Rosita, or you want to talk about the stuff that you took shit for? Oh, yeah, I don't mind talking about the stuff that we Up to you, or we can wrap for. it up and get to your four questions. Let's talk about what I took shit for. <laughs> Let's talk about because yeah. uh, you seem like the kind of guy who'd want to talk about. No, yeah, definitely. The shit you. All right, what did you take shit for? Um, so, I've I've taken shit for the uh, the jokes, like the joke where the blowjob jokes, yeah, the blowjob jokes where um, where Sill Sill is looking for this uh, ounce of weed that he lost, and he goes to a customer that he went that he sold to uh, earlier. And he tries to buy the ounce back, and the customer says, "Okay, fine, I'll give it back to you, but I want you to suck my dick." And <laughs> and you've gotten called homophobic. Yeah, I've been. I, I mean, a couple people. Not not most. Everybody thinks it's pretty funny, uh, but there's a few people who think it's homophobic. 
Um, but it's not the characters might be, or the characters might be challenging him to mm-hmm. overcome his own whatever. Right. But yeah. it doesn't make you that, that you have no, characters. No, it doesn't. No. Um, the char- what, I, what I think about my characters is when I'm writing them, they are they're writing themselves, really. I'm just, I'm not like putting words in their mouth. I, I feel like I'm just doing what naturally would occur next. So I would say uh, in that specific scene, I don't even think it has to, I think it really has to do with the fact that he wants to humiliate him and he wants to. It's dom- a power thing. It's a power thing. He wants to dominate and show him, you know, I'm, I'm bet or I'm better than you or I'm, I'm going to, you know, make you feel lesser than me. So I think in the, but the funny thing is, is that he's asked to do it, uh, instead of just buying it back. <laughs> Um, and then yeah, it's li- not an addition to the money. It's, it's not an just, addition. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an in replacement. I like it in, in replacement. Yeah, that is funny. Um, and then it happens again. And then it happens again in the same day uh, later on when when Silk goes and home. By the way, like mm-hmm. if I were to, by the way, I could go either way. I could like argue for or against, but I could definitely. There are people like that. Yes, there are. If someone, <laughs> if someone said to me, no one would ever say. Uh-huh. Suck my dick and I'll give you, I'll do something I don't really want right. to do. Like, it's just a regular, it, it might be, it it might be a little off-putting to some people, mm-hmm. but there are people like that. That that's, yes. that's, that is a genuine thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a genuine, you know, straight dude thing. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, um, you hear all sorts of stuff that happens in prison all the time. Um, different level. <laughs> that much different level. But yeah, later on in the film, uh, Syl goes home and uh, the mobsters are waiting for him and he apologizes profusely like, you know, I'm so sorry, I'll have it next time. And then they're like, it's okay, it's not a big deal. It's, a, it's an ounce of weed. Don't worry about it. And he's like, no, I, I, I really, I can get it. Yeah, like an ounce you. is a couple hundred bucks, right? Yeah. It's not yeah, a lot. It's not, not a lot. I have no idea what it costs now because it's legal, but. Yeah, um. But anyway, he says, uh, then, then the mobster's like, no, it's not a big deal. And Syl's like, okay, well, thank you very much. And then it changes. <laughs> and, he, and he does this whole monologue. And then uh, at the end of the monologue, he very heavily implies that he, he, he's not going to leave un- unless Syl does something for him. And then Syl's like, well, what do you want? And then he this this mobster just has the biggest smile on his face, and he just starts unzipping his pants, and um, even that is like the same it's the same idea, you know, like a power move. It's like trying to make him feel lesser and humiliate him. Um, I don't really think it's. I don't think that's homophobic to me. To me, that's like a m- male. Uh, well, and it is challenge. Fun. I mean, and and I don't know if you'll bother with it in the feature, mm-hmm. but like you can, you can have, you can add more dimension to it, like in a feature, like There's like in the short. More, yeah. In the short, it's for a laugh, mm-hmm. but like you can make it clear that it's not homophobic. Hell, I honestly, I thought a funny thing would be if Sil was actually gay, mm-hmm. and like so, his his saying no is like. No, I do that for fun when I want to. 
I'm not going to do it because I'm forced to. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. would that would already make it like like I'm like you got no one has any proof that Sill doesn't love to suck a dick. Mm-hmm. He might really like it, uh-huh. but he's not going to do it just to like get out of trouble. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I don't know. That's just. But also, I just don't think uh, you know. I I don't think it's the joke in itself is is homophobic. I think Sill is the butt of the joke. He's the butt of the joke. It's not. I don't think it's at the expense of anyone else but him. And that's what I love about Curb Your Enthusiasm too. Is like whenever uh, Larry gets himself into some crazy situation, and it even has to do with some something kind of a sensitive nature, like a sensitive topic. He did an entire episode after nine eleven called the terrorist attack, and in the episode he hears about a possible terrorist attack on L.A. And he, but he's told not to tell anybody. And he, earlier in the episode, he, he doesn't say goodbye to somebody and he wants that person to like, not think he's such a bad guy. So he tells her the secret about this terrorist attack and then the terrorist attack never happens. And, but everybody's now left LA and it ruins some event. And so he's the butt of the joke of that. It's, they're not making, he's not making fun of like a terror, like a terrorism. He's making fun of himself in that context. And that's what I feel about Syl. I'm making fun of him in that situation, not, not gay people. Fair enough. Yeah. And you know what? Some people won't like it. Some will. Yeah, that's true. And I accept it. Do it for, do it for you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You accept it. You own it. Excellent. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think it's a good place to stop. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. All right. Well, do you want to name, I didn't warn you about this. I was supposed to warn you in the preamble, but I forgot. Do you want to name like a website or social media that people should follow yeah, for you? Yeah, sure. Um, my Instagram is at Justin Aaron Serkin. So that's uh, at J-U-S-T-I-N-A-A-R-O-N-S-I-R-K-I-N. And I will make that a clickable link. Cool. And all right, now you know where to find, find Justin. Now I'm going to do my closing spiel. Get us, get us. Get us out of here. So thank you, anyone still listening to the Discover Indie Film Podcast. I'm Jeff Howard. I program two festivals in the L.A. area. But first, if you want to learn more about this podcast or the TV series on Amazon Prime Video that was born from it, just go to discoverindiefilm.com or it's at D-I-F wins on uh, all the social media platforms that I've heard of. I don't know. There's always new ones. And uh, by the way, that TV series is... Just short films, handpicked from the festival circuit, and we we throw them up on Amazon. It's, there's seven seasons up there, and I'll say no more. Hopefully, season eight's coming. And we mentioned Sherman Oaks Film Festival. It was the where we had the LA premiere of Reseda. Reseda in Sherman Oaks works for me. <laughs> the Valley. Uh, so if you want to learn more about that festival, go to ShermanOaksFF.com or it's at ShermanOaksFF on social media. Sister Festival we hold every June. It's called Film Invasion Los Angeles. You can learn about that if you go to filminvasionla.com and it's at Film Invasion LA on social media. And the last thing to mention, hey, we talked about weed a bit. We had just a tiny, 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 tiny bit. We didn't even really talk about it. It's funny. You made a stoner film. Well, I guess the... Does anyone actually smoke in it? No. See, there's no smoke <laughs> in your stoner film. I love it. Well, if you like... If you can responsibly use cannabis... Or if you just love high quality, uh, high quality indie cinema, 
check out a smart TV app called TV High. Go to Roku, Amazon Prime, uh, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Android TV, Android Mobile, iPhone. All those app stores have an app called TV High, TVHI, or you can go to watchtvhigh.com. And that is a streaming service devoted to stuff that's great. You don't have to be high to enjoy it, but if you're high, it'll be even better. Kind of like 2001, one of the all-time greats. I mean, right. there are some people <laughs> there are some people that think you got to be high to watch that film. I actually have never seen that film high. Me either. either. I've seen it more times than I can count. Mm-hmm. But maybe I should add one high one finally. <laughs> I have not thought to do that. Yeah. I don't even know if my wife has seen that film. But anyway, yeah. Justin, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Jeff. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank <laughs> you.